Before we dive into the text, I want to invite you to take out your phone, and I want to encourage you to join us for something that's going to be starting here uh, in about a week or so. Beginning November 15th, we are going to send out a text every morning with a, with a Bible verse, a short reflection on that verse, and then one uh, thing to guide, guide you in prayer of gratitude as we lead up toward our Thanksgiving. So join us in 11 days of gratitude. It's a very simple text you'll receive. I think we're trying to keep those 100 words or less, so it's very short, but it'll just get your day started the right way to get us into this season of gratitude and get us focused on God's word and focused on the true reasons for our gratitude. So go ahead right now, just text Daily Devo to that phone number. And, and even if you're not a part of this church, maybe you're visiting with us this morning, you're from out of town, or maybe it's your first time here, Join in with this. You're not going to sign up for some crazy um, mailing list or anything like this. Just be a part of this 11 days of uh, Thanksgiving and gratitude with us. Text Daily Devo to that phone number on the screen. We'll leave that up for maybe uh, 60 seconds or so just for people to kind of be able to do that. And then once you have done that, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We are beginning a new chapter this morning, and it is a text about misplaced confidence. That got me thinking about my um, love for GPS navigational systems. I was an early adopter. You know, before there were smartphones, you had the Garmin system, and you put the Garmin in your car. And the reality is, I'm not that great with directions, which I always worried would be a shame to my father because he's great with directions, but I'm not great with directions. But I've I've, be, I've gotten over my shame, and I do not go anywhere without punching the directions into my GPS. And of course, now the ones on your phone, they will take traffic into consideration. They'll route you the best direction. It drives Jody crazy because I'll just follow Waze no matter where Waze tells me to go. And she's like, that's the wrong way. And I'm like, trust, trust the system. And most of the times it works out. But I did discover there is a, a whole rabbit hole on the internet called GPS mishaps. And I need to be careful or I'm gonna end up in as a part of that GPS mishaps list. But, but I kind of fell into this rabbit hole on the internet, GPS mishaps over the last week. And I read about a German man who drove his Mercedes into a pile of sand because he favored his GPS directions over the very clear barricades and signs that said road closed. And he just went right around the road closed, went through some barricades right into a pile of sand. I read about a New Jersey father who had his wife and kids in the car when he came to a T intersection. There's only two choices in a T intersection. It's either left or right, but the GPS insisted he go straight. So he followed the GPS up the curve, across a yard, hit a house. His family members had to be hospitalized. They ended up being okay, but like that, that's, that's the sickness that this man has, and I kind of have too. Uh, I, I read about a truck driver in Spain hauling 32 tons of cargo to Gibraltar. If you know where that is, that famous landmarks in the southern coast of Spain, the GPS told him to go north. It turns out he had, he'd clicked the wrong Gibraltar. He put Gibraltar Point. Gibraltar Point's in rural England. Now, most people would like get a clue, like I'm going north instead of, instead of south, or maybe when they hit the border, welcome to France, he might've been suspicious, but this guy kept on going all the way through France. He crossed over the English Channel, still didn't think anything, and he finally arrived at his destination, 1,600 miles off course. <laughs> but I can't think of any of these stories without thinking of this scene. Take a look on the screens. Proceed straight. Well, we're 0 for 6. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club. Other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't. 
really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know? You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwight. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right. It said take a right. No, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's look, a lake there. I think it knows where it is going. This is the, the lake. machine knows. This is the lake. Stop yelling at me. No, it's not yelling. There's no lake. Here. Remain calm. I have trained for this. Okay. Exit the window. Here we go. Make a U-turn, if possible. I've gotten to watch that four times now, and it took me the first two times to notice that Michael opened the door for the cameraman. Did you catch that? It's so funny. Our text this morning is about misplaced confidence. There's a sense that Paul, in this text in Philippians, is saying the machine does not always know where it's going. In other words, Paul is warning them about something they, they may be tempted to put their confidence in, and he's saying, don't put your confidence there. And here's the truth. Our instinct today, I know it's true in me. I, I sense it's probably true in most of, most of you as well. My instinct today is to put my confidence in the very same thing Paul was warning them against. There are some of you right now in the room listening, maybe you're watching online listening, and, and you sincerely think you're putting your confidence in the right thing. You sincerely think you're going the right way. And what the Spirit of God wants to do through this text is re-speak it to us this morning in a way that will free us, that will redirect us. Honestly, that will save us. And so as we dive in, I wanna just get you caught up into the context. You know, um, we're halfway through this letter. We know Paul's writing from prison. We know he's writing to a church he loved dearly. He, he keeps using words like, um, um, of those I care for, my, my brothers and my sister, and even in this text, we hear that word brother. It's the context of, of my family, a family of faith. We know Paul loves this church. We know he wants to warn them. He wants them to have life. We know that Paul's own life is uncertain. Um, last week, he uh, Lloyd finished chapter two in, in this, this little part that's on Timothy and Epaphroditus and a really great lesson from last week's sermon. Spiritual growth requires human interaction, not simply doctrinal truth. Does it require doctrinal truth? Absolutely. But spiritual growth requires more than that. It requires humans connecting with each other and loving each other and getting down into life together. And as we're halfway through the letter now, we're going to start to see Paul shifting a little less theological, a little less doctrinal, a little more relational 
a little more practical, a little more tangible, and that's what we're gonna see here in Paul's warning to this church that he loves so dearly. We're actually gonna see four things in our text. We'll put this on the screen as an outline, and I'm gonna follow this outline as I walk through our passage. A command, a warning, a reminder, and an example. The text follows that pretty cleanly, and we're just gonna follow right along as we dig into the text. So let's start with a command, which is in verse one. Let's take a look at verse one together. Paul writes, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So Paul is repeating himself, and what is he repeating? Well, he's repeating this command, this idea of rejoice. He's already talked about rejoicing in the Lord and rejoicing, or joy is a theme of Philippians, as you know, and he's saying, listen, I can't remind you enough. I can't tell you enough. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, I don't like it when someone commands me to do something that's really an emotion. Be happy. You know, I don't, if someone's telling me, just, just enjoy life, be happy, and, and things are not going well in my life, I have a problem with that. Um, there have been other contexts in my life that people around me have felt like I should be sad, and I wasn't. They're like, why aren't you sad? I don't know, I just am where I am, you know? And I don't like when people are commanding emotional words. So, so what is Paul doing here? And, and is he essentially commanding them to have a certain emotion? Well, the word rejoice does mean rejoice. It, it does mean choose joy. It means be glad. You, you might think of it as celebrate. It's like throw a party. And, and you might be thinking, well, is Paul just saying put on a happy face and no matter what your circumstances just put on a happy face. Maybe that's how you tend to in interpret that. Our objection to this command, rejoice, is this. Well, my circumstances are not joyful. Here's what we're saying when we say that. We're essentially saying it's the responsibility of the circumstances around me to bring joy in my life. And as long as they're not, I can't rejoice. I won't rejoice. This is our objection. My circumstances are not joyful. Paul's, the way Paul deals with that objection is, is, is pretty subtle, but brilliant. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. What he's doing is he is unattaching joy from circumstances, and he is attaching joy to the Lord. He, he's attaching joy to not a thing, but a person, a being, the being, the person. Rejoice in the Lord. And if you've tracked with us through Philippians so far, you know that this phrase in the Lord is an identity statement. Paul is reminding them who they are, whose they are. And it's a big deal to Paul. He keeps going back to it over and over again. He's saying, in the Lord, you're in the Lord, you're in the Lord. I've, I've Lost my connection, it's back, okay. Uh, so, so why is this so important? Paul's reminding them, if you're in the Lord, and by that, if you've been rescued, if you've been redeemed, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you have an incredible future before you. Your circumstances can't touch the reality that is yours, the riches, the wealth, the, the spiritual assurance that you have in Jesus Christ. Being in the Lord also means there is a relational unity between you and God that nothing can separate you from. This is why in Romans chapter eight, Paul goes on and on. He says, well, you know, who can separate us 
from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Can trial, can tribulation, can famine, can evil powers, can anything in all creation separate us from the love of God that is yours in Jesus Christ? No, Paul says. So you can rejoice. You rejoice in the Lord. Think about it this way. You're not gonna find joy, lasting joy, in your circumstances around you, nor can you manufacture joy yourself by just putting a a happy face, a clown face on your hard life. Instead, you are in joy. Joy doesn't come upon you from external circumstances, nor is it willed internally by you. Joy is in God and you are in God. That's the logic. So so you can rejoice and you you must rejoice and you should rejoice. It can be a command, but only in the Lord. God by nature is a joyful being. And so you have been brought into the unity of, of the Father, Son, and Spirit that is an eternal unity of love and joy, just a perpetually beautiful, joyful relationship that you have been brought into. You have been placed into joy. So rejoice in the Lord. The command is about seeing your life and circumstances through that lens, through the lens of the big picture, which is the true picture. Rejoicing in the Lord is about helping your outside catch up to what is actually true on your inside. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're in the Lord. You are united with the Trinity in this mysterious, beautiful union. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Your future is secured. I think it's why Paul next, he's saying, look, it's no big deal to say this over and over to you, and it's safe for you. What does that mean? How is it safe for you? Because Paul probably had in mind Nehemiah 8, chapter 10, or chapter 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. When you are secure and confident in your identity in Jesus, you are undefeatable. You might lose your job. You might get sick. You might have a relationship break apart in your life. And that does not change one thing about your core identity and where your future is heading. You're undefeatable in that sense. If nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, what do you have to fear? What do you have to run away from? You are safe. And Paul was writing from a jail cell where he didn't know if he was gonna live or die in the next few weeks. And he's writing to people who are being persecuted, people who are struggling, people who are wrestling. Their circumstances were not good. Neither the writer nor the recipient had, had joyful circumstances. And yet Paul is saying, rejoice in the Lord. There's the command. And you can only do that in the Lord, in your identity, in Christ. So rejoice in the Lord, church. There's the command. And now we move on to a warning. Let's look at verse two. Here's the warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You ever had a verse just speak to you? I was watching a football game recently, and the voice of the Lord came to me, and I saw this image on my screen. Now, 
Now, here it is. This, this, I realized this text is best interpreted as a prophecy. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And I was watching Georgia tear up Florida Gators. And I was like, those Florida Gators know something about those who mutilate the flesh. Those are some bad men right there. That's our defense. Now, some of you don't know this. I, I went to the University of Georgia. My wife went to the University of Georgia. We, we met each other in the Red Coat Marching Band at the University of Georgia. We are passionate dog fans. Do you know how hard it's been for me not to say anything? We're number one. <laughs> We're having like the greatest season ever and I haven't said a thing. And here we got like, I see that Tennessee orange over there, my friend. And, and I see Alabama colors every week. And I'm like, well, what about our turn? Well, this is our turn. Beware of the dogs. <laughs> All right. I wish I could just leave that verse there and say I've faithfully taught the word of God, but... My conscience would not allow it. What is Paul actually talking about? Who are the dogs he's actually talking about? These evildoers mutilate the flesh. I mean, this is as strong as Paul gets. Like he is, some, somebody has, has, has just, you know, messed up his day. You know, Paul is upset. Well, you do some digging, you do some background study, and, and you correlate this with other letters that, that Paul wrote, and the picture becomes very clear. There was a group of false teachers that, that came to be referred to as the Judaizers. And I'll explain why we call them the Judaizers in a moment. And they would come into these churches that Paul had planted. And, and they were so-called followers of Jesus. But what they were doing is they were, they were saying, well, yeah, Jesus is Messiah. But you also have to follow all the, Mo the law of Moses in order to be accepted by God. So yes, believe in Jesus. But now you also must become Jewish. By the way, most of these Philippian uh, believers Paul was writing to were, were not Jewish. They, they were Greek. They were Gentiles who had put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's saying, watch out for these people that are going to come in and, and, and they're going to tell you to get all, get all Jewish, to get circumcised. Now, circumcision was the, the external sign of your Hebrew identity, the external sign that you're one of the people of God. And this mutilators of the flesh, those who mutilate the flesh, that is a not so subtle reference to circumcision. So you can imagine for the group of Christians, this was so confusing because these guys would come in after Paul would leave and, and be like, well, well, you know, don't listen to Paul. You know, he, he's a little bit out there. He's a little bit radical. If you want to follow Jesus, you need to become Jewish. And Jesus was Jewish. And that starts with circumcision. And then after circumcision, you got to follow, you know, all the dietary laws. And then, and then there's the Sabbath and all these things you have to do on the Sabbath. And, and, and they were forgetting this idea that, that, that Jesus plus nothing is everything. Now, is circumcision wrong? Was it wrong to be circumcised? Paul himself was circumcised. We'll, we'll talk more about that in, in a little bit. These, these Judaizers were saying, if, if you don't also become Jewish, you will not be rescued. You will not be saved. They, they were taking the work of Jesus and they were adding things to it. But was circumcision itself wrong? In fact, I might say it this way. Is following the law wrong? Any of it? Like, is it wrong to to follow the commands of God because that's what these folks may have thought they were doing. Paul is gonna address this question in verse three. Look where he goes with this. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
Here's another example of Paul reminding them of their identity. He is throwing a theological grenade into the argument because what he's essentially saying is physical circumcision and all the other law of Moses, all that stuff was here to point to a greater spiritual reality that has now been displaced because of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to fulfill the law, and now we are the circumcision. Those who've put our trust in Jesus Christ are the circumcision. We're the ones who have been marked as the people of God, but we no longer are physically marked. We're marked by the Spirit. We worship by the Spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus, not in our works, in his works for us, and therefore we put no confidence in the flesh. And the way he's using the word flesh in this context, it means your good works. So when you hear the word flesh, usually you're probably thinking of your bad works. You know, it's just like the temptations of the flex, the flex, the flesh. In this context, Paul's meaning your good works. Don't put any confidence in the external righteous stuff in your good works. Things like following the law, things like being circumcised. And in our day, we know we it would be different. In our day, it might look like going to church once a week, getting in a small group, tithing your money, making sure your kids are taught well having the fish on your car, you know, whatever it is. Don't put confidence in external righteousness. You might think of flesh in this context this way. It's the stuff you do or don't do that makes you feel like God should help you because you're a good person. The stuff you do, or maybe the stuff you don't do. You ever had something hard come into your life and your instinct is just to kind of look up to God and, and say, why? I'm doing it right. Like, why me? God, have you seen my neighbor who's living like heck and, and yet you bring this trial into my life? I'm trying here. That's an indicator that you're living according to the flesh, that your confidence that, that God should bless you, that he should make your life go well. Why? Because you're trying, because you're doing good things. Paul is saying, do not put your confidence there. It's the wrong way. It will lead you down a dead end road right into a lake. So next, Paul is going to do something very interesting. He's given us a command. He's given a warning. He's giving a reminder. Here's the reminder. We are the circumcision. And now he's going to give an example. And the example Paul's going to give is his own life. And he's not going to use his own life as a positive example. He's going to use his life as a negative example. Here's what Paul's essentially going to say in the verses that we're about to read. He's going to say, just look at me. I've been down this dead end road. In fact, I've put my confidence in my flesh. So far, I've followed it all the way past the warning signs and the barriers, and I took it as far as it can go. I took the dead end road all the way into the lake, and, and this is what that looked like for Paul. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he's going to list all his good works. Circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Seven things on Paul's spiritual resume. Let me talk about them each very, very briefly. Circumcised on the eighth day. We've already talked about circumcision. The eighth day was when the law of Moses commanded parents to circumcise their newborn male children. So that means not only was Paul righteous, but Paul's coming from parents, a heritage that were righteous, that did the right thing as well. Of the people of Israel, the national identity that set Paul and and the other Hebrew people apart. You know, they're a, a member of God's chosen nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin as a tribe was special. They were they were given the land when the land was allotted, when they entered the promised land. Benjamin got the place that the temple would end up being, where Jerusalem was. Uh, the very first king of Israel was selected from the tribe of Benjamin. Think about that. It'd be like, you know, George Washington. He's from, from Virginia. I bone up on my history. I think that's right. Yeah, so like the Virginians have pride, right? So, so the very first king chosen from the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, what was the first king's name? Saul, which was Paul's name before he came to Jesus. So Paul has this personal identity, tribe of Benjamin. Man, think about my own name. I'm Saul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I can't get any more Jewish than I already am, is what he's saying. As to the law, a Pharisee. Now he shifts kind of the, the first few things were all his identity. Now he's gonna talk about his righteousness, his, his activities. He was a member of, of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the best law keepers ever, they had broken the law in all, over 600 commands, and they obeyed every one of them. In fact, they invented new laws to keep them away from God's laws so they wouldn't get too close. It was called fencing the law, putting a fence around the law. And they followed all these things to a T, and that's where Paul was, Saul. That's where Saul was before Jesus intervened. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, Saul was so serious about his faith that he actively went after Christians because he thought they were teaching false doctrine and he thought they were dangerous. In fact, Saul put Christians to death with a stone cold, clear conscience because he was convinced he was doing God's will. And then finally, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You and I might say no one's blameless, and and Paul would actually agree with you, but from the perspective of his pharisaical self, didn't get any better. Didn't get any better than Saul. Where did the spiritual resume get him? This guy was on top of the religious community. He was the best-looking spiritual person. Everybody that saw him thought, that man, that man is close to the Lord. Man, I wish I could be more like that man. Where did it get him? But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It got him nowhere, it amounted to nothing. In fact, Paul's actually saying here it was worse than nothing. He's using an accounting analogy. You know, accounting, you've got two sides of the ledger. You've got debits and credits. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, what I had put in my credit column, all the things that I thought were gain for me that made me right with God, it turned out. It wasn't just that they were neutral. 
They were taking me in the wrong direction. They were getting me lost. Why would Paul say, whatever gain I counted as long? He's putting his whole resume now on the debit side of the ledger. Why the whole thing? And this doesn't seem right. Wrestle with me in this for a minute. I might have thought, well, the persecuting the church part, yeah, that was pretty bad. That's on the debit side. But getting circumcised on the eighth day, that was the right thing for Saul's parents to do as devout Jews. It was. All the righteous living that Saul did when in his mind his intentions were actually trying to honor the Lord, et cetera, et cetera, those were good things. Why is it that Paul is saying, all of that, all of that I counted as loss? Because this is really important. Because up until God intervened in Saul's life, all his religious identity and achievement were keeping him away from seeing his need. Do you realize what that meant? They were keeping him away from Jesus. They weren't just failing to save him. They were blinding him to the truth. Saul's righteousness was keeping him away from God and he didn't even realize it. This is so important. This is so profound. Saul's righteous acts blinded him to his unrighteous heart. If you would have asked Saul before Jesus came into his life, Saul, what do you need to be rescued from? He would have stuttered, he would have bumbled, and he would not have had anything to say. It, it always hits me hard that God came to earth, and when God came to earth, it was the most righteous religious rule keepers who didn't recognize him. I hope you feel the weight of that. If you're someone, at least like me, and I know our stories are all different, but I, I grew up, I was good. I was good. I did the right things. I did the good things. I memorized the books of the Bible. I mean, I did all this stuff. I was in Awana, okay? <laughs> I, I memorized all these verses. I had all this stuff and all these kinds of things. I was doing the best I could. And, and meanwhile, you know, I, we had an interesting thing happen in my family in high school. My, my younger brother kind of was a prodigal son story, and I was the elder son. I mean, I stayed home. I did it right. This is my story. Saul is saying, or Paul, Paul is saying now, looking back on it, Paul is saying, there's more than one way to rebel against God. You can rebel like a prostitute and a tax collector and a murderer and a robber, or you can rebel like a Pharisee. Neither one will be rescued until they see their need and cry out for help. So what about the Pharisees, you know? What about the Sauls of the world? Those are doing maybe, you know, the right things for the wrong reasons, or sometimes maybe the wrong things, but it's for the right reasons, at least in their own minds. What about them? Does God not love them too? Yes, he does. 
God loved Saul enough to intervene in his life. And do you remember what happened with Saul? You know, here Saul was the persecutor of the church. Here Saul was the Pharisee, the righteous one, the leader of all the Pharisees. And, and he was on his way to go persecute some more Christians. And God showed up in his life. And you know what God did in his grace? He blinded Saul. It was as if God was saying, Saul, you think you can see, but I'm now going to show you that you cannot. Saul, you think you know me, but I want to show you that you do not. Saul, you think your outward righteousness has earned credit for you. I want to show you how blind it has made you. And in that moment of blindness, or the first time in his life, Paul realized that he could not see. He cried out, who are you, Lord? And God said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And the arrow struck the heart of the righteous man. And so I believe as Paul is writing these words in his jail cell, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. He was remembering that moment. And so now I want you to picture Paul years after his encounter with Jesus. He, he's remembering all this and guess what he has now that he didn't have then? Joy. He understands that verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's your salvation, it's your true identity, it's your rescue, not the righteous works. It's all in the Lord. Whatever gain I had is loss for the sake of Christ. You see, when you come to Jesus, you have to trade in everything. You trade in all your righteous living as well as your unrighteous living. You leave it all behind. And you say, now for me, it's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's just trusting Jesus and it's following Jesus and it's believing Jesus. God had to get Saul to a place where he could see his righteous acts for what they were. They were wrong directions. They were misplaced confidence. They were barriers and barricades from understanding his true need for rescue. They were things that were keeping him from Jesus. And as we apply this text this morning, I, I just will say this. God wants for you today the same thing he wanted for Saul. The same thing that years later, Paul, as he wrote this letter, wanted for the believers in Philippi, because this message is not just for lost people. It's for all of us. The thing that God wants for us is he wants Jesus for us. He wants us to know Jesus, not just know things about Jesus. He wants us to serve Jesus, not just do good things for Jesus. He, he wants us to relate to Jesus, to talk to Jesus, to rejoice in Jesus, to, to, to have a friendship with him, to be brought into the family and relax and just say, oh, it's not about me. It never was. So I actually think there are more than a few people in the room or watching online this morning who don't actually really know Jesus. 
You've been doing some good religious things mixed in with the hardness of your heart that you know you have and I have as well. You've been doing good religious things. You've been hoping, you've been calling, you've been wondering, you've been praying even, but you don't really know Jesus. You're not relating to him. You're not in relationship with him. And so what I've been praying this morning for you is that God would be gracious to open your eyes. That you would put no confidence in your flesh. That that whatever gain you thought you had, you would count it as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so there is an invitation for you this morning and, and for all of us. It is an invitation to joy. And here is our invitation to joy this morning. Ask Jesus to open your eyes to your need for him and rescue you from your self-sufficiency. And then rejoice in the Lord. For some of you, this is the first time you've done this. You may never have realized that your own self-sufficiency is what's keeping you away from God, that you actually need to turn away from your good works. And by that, I don't mean start doing bad works. I just mean set them aside, count them as loss, and call out for rescue. See the darkness, the blackness, the unrighteousness of your own heart and cry out to Jesus to cleanse you. And he will, he will, just like that. And you'll be brought into the Lord. You'll be brought into relationship just like that. For some of you this morning, this is your day. For many of us, we, we've had that moment in the past where we put our trust in Jesus, but, but we've gone right back to our own flesh. And things have come into our lives and in our mind, we're like, God, I'm doing right. I'm trying hard. What gives? You haven't had any joy because you've been trying to relate to God like that. Our invitation to joy this morning is the very same thing. Jesus, opened my eyes to, to my need for, for you fresh. Rescue me from my self-sufficiency and help me to rejoice in the Lord. And so I wanna give us just a moment. I'm gonna pray for us. And in the beginning of my prayer, I'm just gonna allow about 30 seconds, 45 seconds of silence. And, and this is our opportunity to, to pray this prayer just in our own hearts, just right where you are. Some for the first time, others, you need this prayer again this morning. And so let me lead us in this. Father, we, we, we begin and we come before you and we offer this sacred moment for us to talk to you right now. Jesus, would you open our eyes to our need for you? We get so self-sufficient. We get going with our lives. We were juggling all the balls. We're doing all the things. And sometimes we forget how desperately we need you. We look around us and we see people living like however we want. And we think to ourselves, at least I'm not like them. And we miss the unrighteousness in our own hearts. Father, would you open our eyes Help us to see our need for you. Would you rescue us from our self-sufficiency, from all the ways that we think things in our lives are in the credit column? Would you help us to see that, that, that there's nothing in the credit column except for Jesus Christ, but he is enough. 
He is enough. And Jesus, would you help us to rejoice in you, the God of joy. May we rejoice that we are securely in you. May we rejoice that we are undefeatable because of our identity in you, that you have grafted us in, that you have given us more than what we could ever imagine. Would you open our eyes to see that? And may we rejoice in you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And let's all stand up and let's rejoice in the Lord together through this song.